Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone. It's Kimmy and All the Wiser. I know that last week we wrapped our season with the Ask Me Anything episode. But given the tragic school shooting in Texas yesterday and our history of discussing this topic on the show, my gut told me I should pull the recording equipment back out and have a conversation with you today. It is with incredible sadness and heartbreak that I record this open introduction as a result of the mass murder at Robb Elementary School in Texas yesterday, where 19 children and two adults were murdered. One of the main intentions with All the Wiser is to use human stories to allow us to think differently about the world, to learn about different perspectives and voices and messages. As one of the hundreds of millions of people in this country who is heartbroken and outraged, it is critical that we understand all aspects that lead to mass shootings. Last fall, I had the privilege of speaking with two moms who lost their sons in very different ways to school shootings in this country. One was Sue Klebold, who you are about to hear from. Sue is the mother of Dylan Klebold, one of the two shooters at Columbine High School. And the other was Scarlett Lewis, the mother of Jesse Lewis, who lost his life in the mass shootings at Sandy Hook. Both women loved their sons and both have committed their life to ending shootings like the one that happened yesterday. There is so much that has to change in this country to end these shootings. And my hope is that today, in re-airing Sue Klebel's episode and encouraging you to then go back and listen to Scarlett Lewis's story, that we can think deeply about how little boys grow up to be young men who commit mass murders and kill children. So today, I look to these two women to help us understand more about potential solutions as people who have dedicated their lives and the legacy of their children to finding solutions. I hope you will take action, whether that is writing to your congressmen or your senators to change policy in Washington whether that is listening to these episodes to learn more about the role of mental health and social and emotional health in these shootings. And I pray that somehow, some way, we will all find a way to do our part in finally ending school shootings and mass shootings in this country. Here's today's re-air of my conversation with Sue Klebold. Hello, Sue, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you, Kimmy. I always open our interviews by having our guests introduce themselves. So, Sue, I'm curious, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, I would say that I am Sue Klebold, and I am the mother 
of Dylan Klebold, who was one of the shooters at the Columbine High School tragedy, where he and his friend killed 12 students and a teacher and injured more than 20 others before taking their own lives. And that was on April 20th, 1999. And I normally start in talking with our guests, sort of going back to the beginning, if you will. And today we are going to talk a lot about your son, Dylan. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about Dylan as a little boy and your you know, early memories of not only Dylan, but your family in the early years of growing up and being a young family. Well, I have always said that the most remarkable thing about Dylan's story, I think, is how unremarkable our lives were before this tragedy. My husband and I had been married for many years. We had two sons. Dylan was the younger of two sons. And uh, where we were sort of a suburban middle-class family, we were just as ordinary and unremarkable as can be. And um, I certainly, as a mother, you know, my children were the most important thing in the world to me. And uh, I did everything I knew how to be as good a parent as I could be. My, you know, I loved my kids. We did all kinds of activities together. Dylan was a very bright, precocious young youngster. He was in a gifted program at school. But, you know, they were in Cub Scouts and Little League. And uh, when Dylan got into high school, he was, did the sound, he was a sound technician for school plays. His life seemed so ordinary. And um, he was a bright little boy. He could read at the age of four. He could read books like... Um, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little silently to himself. And he loved to do things that required skill. He loved organizing. He loved following directions. And he was a very good child. You know, he had never had any diagnoses of any kind of problems, any kind of learning problems of any kind, personality disorders, nothing. He was lovable. He had a lot of friends. He was fun to be with. And as a parent, I thought it was so easy to manage his behavior. He was very responsive to any kind of guidance we provided. So this long, long progression uh, of becoming, you know, who ending up in such a terrible way in his life was something that, you know, I, I struggled to understand and I still struggle to understand it. When, and I know so much of this, right, is in the the looking back and putting together the timeline and the pieces Yes. Um, over these many years. But when do you remember starting to see some of changes with him? And I think, you know, important to say that teenage years, early teenage years are really, really difficult for all of us. So I would say that almost any parent, right, we begin to see changes as our kids experience the world more deeply. And that's right on target for what I saw. Um I began to see that Dylan was experiencing a lot of self-consciousness and discomfort. That started, that I remember, around uh, the time he was about 12 years old. I remember that he was suddenly very uncomfortable being in a, a program at school, a gifted program. He didn't want to be viewed as different. But I think the real change, the real dramatic thing that I saw happen was when he was in his junior year. Now, he was a year younger than his peers because he'd entered school a year early. 
in his junior year, he had a cluster of trouble. And this is one of the things that as I look back now, that one of the signs that someone's mental health may be uh, in a deteriorating state are changes in behavior. And he had several incidents that occurred in a cluster. And I was not aware of what this could possibly mean. And other people weren't aware either. But um, what happened was in his, in his junior year, he got in trouble at school for the first time in his life. He had scratched a locker. We were called in for a disciplinary response to that. He and his friends, another young boy, and I believe there was a third, they had been the school technicians to help teachers and students with the computers, but one of, they had managed to access the locker combinations that were considered private and uh, should not have been accessed. So basically it was a kind of hacking and he got in trouble for that. And also in his junior year, he and his friend Eric, who ultimately was the young man who did the shootings with him, got in trouble for stealing something. They stole some electronic equipment from a van that was parked on a country road near us. And those three things happened. And, and, and I was concerned. And I, I remember talking to the diversion counselor because he had gotten into a diversion program. It was a first offense. And I remember you know, asking him, say, asking the, the uh, counselor, I don't know what this means. This is all different. I've never seen any of these behaviors before. Could he need counseling? And I remember the diversion counselor turning to him and saying, Dylan, do you think you need counseling? And of course, as a, as a 16-year-old boy, he said, no, I don't need counseling. You know, I will prove to you that I'm fine. And um, the last 14 months of his life, he did go out of his way to prove to us that he was fine. He was accepted uh, at four colleges and made it into the college of his choice. He was active with and doing the sound technology for school plays. He had a job after school. His grades were, were fair. They weren't great, but then neither were mine at that age. And, you know, what I could see was that he was working to get his life on track. He and, his, and Eric were released from the diversion program early because they considered them successes, that they'd done an outstanding job. You know, in that last 14 months of his life, he was really trying to demonstrate that he was in control of his behaviors and his choices. But then we come all the way to the end of senior year. I was not aware that he was having problems. I was not aware that he was experiencing some difficult things at school, such as bullying incidents. And in the last days of his life, a few things occurred. One was he had written a paper that was violent and a teacher had seen it. And once again, this was 22 years ago, we didn't know what that meant. We didn't know what to do. A school counselor talked to him and said, you know, you're not allowed to write papers like this with bad language in them. And he said, I know. And the counselor said, well, don't do it again, okay? Because the hard thing to remember about this is that Dylan did not present as someone who was dangerous or, you know, terribly angry or someone to be feared. He was just sort of a an easygoing, quiet kid. And uh, in the last days of his life, he went to a prom with his friends. That day, he, he picked out his dorm room for college. We'd gone on a college visiting trip a couple weeks before that. He came home from the prom early in the morning, and he talked to me and thanked me 
for sending him and said he'd had the best time he'd ever had in his life. And then uh, that was a Saturday. Three days later, he was dead and he had killed all those people and injured them. And I was totally, totally uh, confused, uh, overwrought. I didn't understand any of it. I couldn't understand how he got to where he got at the end of his life. What do you remember about the last time you saw Dylan? I don't even remember exactly the last time I saw him. What sticks in my mind was the last time I heard his voice. And that was the morning of the shootings. That weekend, he had been very busy because he was going to a prom and he was, you know, picking up a tuxedo and a corsage. And the kids were, you know, there were six couples and they went in a limo and everybody was dressed up. And I remember that that weekend vividly. And it seemed that he was having fun and he told me he was having fun. But what I remember that weekend was that my husband said, have you noticed Dylan's voice lately? It sounds a little tense. Do you think he's he could be worried about something? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, when he gets stressed, the pitch of his voice is a little bit high. And I, the, the pitch of his voice sounds a little high to me. And I said, well, I, I haven't heard it. I don't know. Maybe he's just nervous because of all these things going on in his life. And um, on the day of the shootings, he got up very early, earlier than he usually did. I was getting ready for work. It was probably 5.30 in the morning. And I heard Dylan coming down the stairs in the dark. And I opened my bedroom door and I called his name. And I said, Dill, because I, I was wondering what he was doing up that early. And he, at that point, had walked past my door and was at the front door. And all he said was, bye. And then he slammed the door and he was gone. And I was up, I was concerned. I said, boy, Tom, wake up, my husband. I said, I think you're right. Something is bothering him. And will you be here today to talk to him when he comes home and figure out what it is? And he said, yes, I will. And I went to work assuming that everything would be okay. I had no idea of the magnitude what was happening. I thought maybe he had some kind of a, I don't know, a falling out with a friend or something, some small teenage issue but that was the day of the shootings, and I never heard his voice again. When did you first learn about the shootings? Where were you, and what were you told? I first learned about it that day at about, it was between 12 and 1, about lunchtime. I was at work, and I was preparing to go to a meeting at one of the colleges, because I worked for the community college system. And I was away from my desk getting ready because I was going to go in my car and drive to one of the community colleges. And when I came back to my cubicle, my light on my phone was flashing. And I thought, boy, I better take this one last call before I go. And it was my husband leaving me a message. And he sounded completely distraught. He was gasping and his voice was ragged and uh, breaking and... Um, and he said, Susan, this is an emergency. Call me back immediately. And I could tell by the sound of his voice that something had happened to one of our boys. I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. I was, you know, going over in my head, where are they? You know, Dylan's at school. He should be fine. My other son was at work. He should, you know, what could it be? They're, they're where they should be. And then I called my husband back and he was just I wouldn't use the word hysterical because he wasn't uh, verbalizing, but he was just uh, so upset. I could just hear his 
his breath. It was just so uh, scratchy and deep. And, and he said, listen to the television. And, and I, I couldn't hear the television. And I'm saying, what, what? I can't hear it. And then he got back on the phone and he said, there's some kind of a shooting at the school. Some gunmen are killing people or shooting people. And they think they have trench coats. And Dylan was one of the kids that had a trench coat. And he said, I've looked and I can't find his coat. And he said, they think Dylan may be one of the shooters. And then I said, I'm coming home right now. And all the way home, I just, I was crying. I was not crying. I was trying to talk myself down and be calm. And, you know, I was thinking maybe he's been hurt. Maybe someone has killed him. Uh, You know, maybe this was a prank. Maybe he got involved with something that went awry and then he'd be in big trouble because of the diversion program. But when I got there, uh, it was believed that he was a part of it. And, um, you know, this, the police were coming to our house. The SWAT team was coming. And it was just the beginning of this long, long nightmare. In those days and weeks that followed, Sue, I think about you and so many things when it comes to grief, the layers and the complexity of everything you must have been going through and the layers and of grief, right? Which yes. is so complex and dynamic for anyone, but for you specifically. And then the piece that was sort of heartbreaking to me when I thought about it, and I don't know if you'll agree, but I would imagine to some people at that time that there wasn't even in people's minds room for you to grieve. Right. And even now I deal with that. And, you know, having a conversation such as ours today, you know, my son was a killer and he took the lives of innocent people. He injured innocent people to the extent that they will have disabilities for the rest of their lives. And the fact that I am even being interviewed for some might be offensive. And um, the, what what I have sort of pieced together with, you know, 22 years of looking back is that when individuals do something such as Dylan did, when they hurt other people and, you know, when they kill other people, that individual is never viewed as a victim of the tragedy that they perpetrate. Likewise, their family members are never viewed as victims of that tragedy either. So I think it is, you know, your your observation is quite accurate that we as loved ones of perpetrators of crimes are not really permitted to grieve. It is it is believed that our loved one did not deserve to be mourned, did not have the value of someone who was killed. And this is just all part of what we do, you know, kind of naturally. And I certainly would have been doing that myself had my son not been the perpetrator of this, if he had been a victim and not a perpetrator. I would have felt that his life as an innocent person who was killed on that day was certainly much more valuable, much more important than that of the perpetrator. So yes, I think that is a perception that occurs. And I I think it's understandable. And I have no, certainly no argument with that. But I do know as the mother of someone who did what Dylan did, you know, it is very hard to be hated. It is very hard to have your child hated and, and maligned. And Uh, That's just all part of this long and difficult grief process. What were the layers of your grief in the early days, the days and and weeks and months that followed the day of the shooting? 
it's so hard to describe because I never have, and I hope never will experience anything like that. Because uh, the the layers, the depth, it it was just unfathomable. Every bad emotion a human being can have, I had it, and it lasted for years. The one of the first things I was feeling, of course, was the awful remorse and horror that he would hurt other people. That I would look, you know, at the news and I would see photographs in the paper or here, and, and I'd see funerals for other children. I'd see grieving parents. I'd see, you know, people by someone's bedside in a hospital trying to uh, hope that an individual survived the shooting. To know that your child was responsible for something like that and to know that you raised this child. I, I don't even know how to describe that feeling. It is humiliating. It is terrifying. It is heartbreaking. When I think of, you know, I'm the kind of person who, you know, takes a, a spider outside because I can't stand to harm anything. And then to have a child who would do what Dylan did, it was beyond my ability to integrate that kind of information. It took me years to just integrate the reality of what had happened. But then there were other layers to this thing, too. One layer, of course, was that I had lost my own child, my own youngest child, who was beloved to me. And then on top of that, there was the glare of world attention. I was afraid. I was afraid for my safety. I was uh, ashamed of what he had done. I didn't want anyone to know who I was or what my connection was to him. So it was just all of these things that were complicated pieces. And the process of recovering from something like that takes a very, very long time. Really what happens is it really destroyed my identity. I believed that my child was a good person. I believed that I was a good mother. I believed that my love was protective. My prayers were protective. But everything I believed about myself and my family and God and everything was destroyed all in that one moment. So um, the process of, of recovering from the grief is really, for me, it was a process of redefining who I was and trying to um, just accept, understand, and actually be kind to whoever that person was and so that I could survive it. Are there any, you know, we we talked about the opposite, right? This notion that there is no room or tolerance for your grief mm-hmm. and what I would imagine at the time that there was anger and hate, lots of really, really strong emotions. But I would also imagine, Sue, that there was moments of kindness and compassion Yes, for you and your family. So are there some things big and small that carried you through this very, very dark chapter? There are so many. We were isolated and separated. We went into literally into hiding, followed the shootings. We stayed in someone's basement while the police had asked us to evacuate our home. So my my friends weren't able to find me, weren't able to locate me. And one of the things that they did was they stopped by my house and they put a poster on our gate and 
it just said, you know, we're here for you. We love you. And they had signed their names. And when the, the media came by and filmed it, it made it to the news. And then I was able to see who had signed that and who had been at my house. And it meant so much to me to know that they were there and they were caring and trying to find me. And, you know, that was wonderful. Another thing that occurred was, you know, how when it was time to leave our house, when we had to evacuate, how, you know, other neighbors came by and, you know, it helped us do that. It was impossible. There were people lining the roads in both directions and we would have been chased. And um, these uh, neighbors came and followed us out of our driveway and parked their car across the road so that no one could follow us and we could drive to a safe place. But honestly, those are just two of so many. I mean, friends who brought us food, who planted flowers in the pots on my porch on Mother's Day. People were were looking after me like angels in a thousand ways that I, I wasn't even aware was going on until much later. I know eventually you wrote letters to families who had lost their loved ones and individuals who were, who were injured. Tell me about that process, your decision to write those letters and your intention and how that was received. The, the fact that a, a member of your family would commit a mass murder like this, you know, the statistics on that, that this would actually happen in a family are probably one in millions Five million, perhaps. So there's no, there's no book, there's no guidebook on what to do. I had a sense, uh, just a gut feeling that I somehow wanted to connect. I wanted to say I was sorry for what my son had done. I wanted to open the door so that if anybody wanted to meet me or wanted to know who I was that I was there, that I was a human being, that I was heartbroken over their loss. And I just thought maybe doing something rather than nothing might help a little. And so, yes, I did write letters to to different uh, families, both the family members of uh, deceased people and also of of the people who were injured. And at the time, I didn't really know what had happened. And that was part of all this healing was that I didn't even understand Dylan's role or what he had done until six months after this happened. And so I referred in those letters to what he did as a moment of madness, because I was not aware when I wrote the letters that this was a planned activity, that they had worked on this and there was a plan. I believed for so long that it was just a spontaneous thing that somehow he fell into And I think the letters reflected that. And, you know, I don't know. I just felt that it was something I had to do. And I I want to talk about that when you began to understand more about the timeline and the notion that this was not, in fact, a moment of madness. But in the process of beginning to reach out and having that communication and connection at that time, did any of the families, were they ready or open to to meet with you or, or to talk with you? Only a couple were. I would see in the paper that people were angry or that they tore it up and didn't read it. Or, but reactions were all over the place. Everything from a kind, uh, you know, 
caring response to just rage. And um, so that's the nature of these things, that we are all going to respond differently and we do the best we can. But there's no right or wrong way that I know to respond to any of this. We're all just coping in whatever way that we can. And, you know, you talked about this idea of you personally being blamed and Mm -hmm. this expectation that you should have known the unknowable and that each time that came up or has come up, that it's really a punch in the gut. Yes. The notion that somehow you are responsible or failed as a mother, I can't even begin to fathom how deeply hurtful that must be when you experience that. So I am curious sort of how you experience that and how you how you reconcile that when that question is is asked of you. Well, again, like everything that has happened, it's a it's a long process of evolution. In the beginning, if someone asked me how could you not know, it it did. It felt like a physical injury, like I just, you know, like it was an assault on me, on my character, on my heart. As the years have gone by, and I've spoken with so many people who have lost loved ones to suicide or who have family members who have been incarcerated, now I kind of welcome that question because it's my opportunity to try to educate or enlighten and try to explain that there is very, there's a lot that goes on with people that we don't know. Even let's just take the issue of suicide without murder attached to it. You know, about half of us know that our loved one might be suffering and might be having suicidal thoughts. And about half of us don't. We don't have any clue at all because the individual works very, very hard to hide that. And, you know, what I have come to learn is to try to help people understand that what we believe about our loved ones, the people in our lives, may not be true at all, that we can't necessarily trust behaviors that we see, that when people are in distress, they go out of their way to try to hide some of those feelings. They don't want to appear weak. They don't want to appear incapable of handling their own problems and feelings. So, you know, there are there are a lot of incentives for people not to share when they have bad feelings. So now I think, you know, I feel very differently about it when people ask me that question. But in the beginning, I think the reason it hurts so much was because that was a question I was asking myself. I was saying, you know, how could you not know? How could you possibly love someone and not know what they were going through? And I, you know, hated myself. And that is part of what we as lost survivors do, especially if, if our, our loved ones have died by suicide. We feel that we should have done something different to save them, to stop them, to know what they were thinking, to say those magic words, to get them to a different place so they didn't feel the pain that they were feeling. And in that sense, that response is kind of a universal response. You touched on it, this idea of the moment of madness you thought to be true Mm -hmm. and and the months and years that followed, learning more and more about Dylan's journey with mental health and his brain health. (laughs) And you discovered many things, many things that, that had been hidden from you. So I'm curious what that process looked like for you to 
uncover that and some of the most important discoveries you found along the way? So I couldn't understand how Dylan was there at that time. I couldn't understand how he could hurt other people. But I think the big mystery for me was, you know, how he could hurt himself. In the months following this tragedy, when I began to uh, learn really what had happened, and then it was not something that was spontaneous, that it was planned, that he had actively taken part in trying to kill everyone at the school. The police report came out six months later when I had a dose of reality of what had really happened. But one of the things the police found, they showed me or shared with me in the year following his death, was that they had found some of his writings. And I could see in his writings that even at the age of 15, he was talking about that his life was in agony. He was talking about cutting himself. He was talking about wishing he could get a gun and he could die. And he was expressing these suicidal thoughts. And I had the opportunity to to look at my own journals because I was a journaler. And at the same time, those feelings were going on. I might be writing in my journal. We had a great day. We all watched, you know, the Super Bowl together. We all took a hike. And it was a juxtaposition to see that when normal things were going on in our family, things that I thought indicated everything was fine, he was truly suffering. He was uh, writing about wanting to die. One of the things I found in his room, the police found in his room, I got it much later, was that he had a bottle of St. John's wort that he had bought. But, you know, it seems that he knew he was unhappy and was trying to help himself in whatever way he knew how, but he didn't really know how. You know, I heard you speak and it was interesting listening to it because you were talking about, you know, a deep regret you have looking back and mm-hmm. and the regret was so powerful and simplistic all at once. And it was about communication, mm-hmm. more importantly about listening and how we as parents communicate with our kids. Can you share with me your thoughts, your regret around communication with Dylan? Yes. When I look back on every conversation we had and times where I thought I was being a good mom and I was being supportive and I was helping, I think I realized that the one regret that I had was that I didn't understand the importance of listening. And so the one piece of advice I have for parents everywhere, and certainly teachers and and counseling professionals and everyone, is the importance of just to just shut up and listen. We always think our kids don't talk to us. They don't come to us with their problems. You know, they, they may not share information with us. But I look back on how I as a parent would handle if my son would have tried to talk to me in some way. I think the thing that I would have done, and certainly it's what my parents did, is if he had come to me with some of these feelings and some of these, you know, behaviors he was struggling with, I feel certain that I would have tried to, number one, make him feel better. And in doing that, if we try to make our kids feel better, For example, the example I always use is is my own upbringing when I was a kid. And I would, you know, look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm so ugly. I'm so stupid. Nobody likes me. 
And what my loving mother would do would be to um, say, oh, you know, I love you. I think you're pretty. I think you're smart. But by doing those kinds of things, what we're doing is we're we're sort of denying them the ability to uh, acknowledge that feeling. We're pretty much saying to them, no, you can't have that feeling because, you know, we don't validate it. We don't validate their feelings. And I think as parents, we are so uncomfortable when our children are unhappy that we do everything we can to make them feel better. We try to fix things. We get them appointments with the individuals in their lives who can help them. And that's all good. It's not a bad thing. But the important thing is to sit in silence and just give them an opportunity to express what they're feeling and then to not try to fix it, to just repeat back, you know, I hear you saying that you're feeling this way or something that I never would have done in a million years. And that is to say that, well, you know, when sometimes when people can't sleep or whatever, they haven't eaten, they're losing weight, they're they're really struggling with suicidal thoughts. Are you struggling with suicidal thoughts? Do you ever think about killing yourself? I mean, these are this is an important question, but it takes some training in order to be able to ask that question comfortably. And then the hardest thing of all, we can't be frightened by what that answer is. If the answer is, yes, I am, then don't jump into fix-it mode. Shut up and listen. Talk about the feeling. Let them know that you don't judge them. Thank them for sharing. I think about all the ways I might have done that differently. You know, instead of being the kind of parent who is trying to correct his behavior, get him to, you know, help the family, focus on other people for a change, you know, the kinds of things we do. We're so busy coaching and guiding and uh, instructing. And um, I really regret that I did that as often as I did and wish I had said much less and just let him feel what he felt. Knowing what you know now, if you had the ability to go back in time in the two years leading up to losing Dylan and the shootings, what would you do knowing what you know today? There is one scene that comes to mind always when I think of where I uh, cringe the most And that is, you know, when Dylan was in trouble around the time when he had a bad time in his junior year, and I remember scolding him, you know, lecturing him. He had done something. He hadn't remembered to do something he was supposed to do. And I can't remember if it was, you know, feed the cat or get me a Mother's Day card or do something. But his attitude had been bad. He was irritable and he was cranky and and I had sort of had it, you know, I shoved him against the refrigerator and I said, look, you know, stop. You got to think about somebody else for change or, you know, it was mean. I, and I, I look back on that moment is the worst moment of my life in our relationship because, you know, he was hurting and I didn't see that. And I wish rather than lecturing him, pushing him against the refrigerator, I had just thrown my arms around him and just said, you know, let's stop everything, you know, let me just stop everything and sit down here with you and listen. And I play out in my head over and over again how I wish that conversation had been different. I don't know if it would have changed any outcomes or not, but I just know that in my heart, that's the incident I go back to when I was, you know, trying to be the mom to to build his character. And I was so unaware of 
what he was struggling with inside, just so blind to it. And uh, I wish I could have that moment over. You know, you've really dedicated your life's work since 1999 and to the journey of your own healing, but also to the science, the understanding, and a movement to create change and understanding when it comes to mental health and suicide and mental health and homicide and violence. So I, I, I want to talk to you about that. And I also want to talk about your own mental health. Obviously, this was a hugely, hugely traumatic event. And I know I read you started developing panic attacks. I believe when you were going to do the depositions with the victim's families, is that correct? Yes. Can you talk to me about that? Yes. Um, you know, and, I, and just in terms of who I am, I think I'm the kind of person, as a child, I was kind of an anxious child. I mean, anxiety has been something that has always been an issue for me. And from time to time in my life, when things have been stressful, I have had panic reactions. But what happened to me after Dylan died was different than anything else I had ever had. It was stronger. It took over my life. The panic reactions started happening about four years after the tragedy, and I was coming up on uh, depositions, and uh, that was the first episode that I had. And uh, what I experienced were just these moments of uncontrolled terror. My thoughts were cycling sort of like a hamster cage. I couldn't, you know, I was afraid of being afraid, which essentially is what a panic attack is. You feel fear and you're afraid that the fear will hurt you, and so you become more afraid. I was seeing a therapist for many years. I had to actually start medication that I had never taken before. Uh, and I, of course, trying to handle that anxiety, I was doing everything that I knew how to do. You know, I was trying to do exercise and yoga and, you know, being in nature and um, anything I could do, breathing, but, you know, when you when everything in your body is under that kind of stress level and it's driven by your thoughts, it is a difficult thing. And it, it does take time and it takes, you know, you have to learn how to live with it and learn how to care for yourself. And it's just one of the one of the many pieces of this journey that I had to work through. And what do you know now about Dylan's brain health? his mental health journey and in hindsight, what he was experiencing, if there's a diagnosis, what do you know to be true about that? Well, I think one of the first things I know to be true is that when something like this happens, we'll never really have the answers that we seek. I tried as well as I could to piece together what could have happened that would have had him be involved in this. And I think with Dylan, uh, it was a combination of rage and humiliation from bullying incidents that occurred. And I think some of them occurred when he and Eric were together and their other friends weren't around. And I think it was also uh, his own suicidality that was in combination with uh, a very influential and controlling friend and a friend who was very homicidal. And, uh, you know, Eric's anger from his writings, and it, it appeared to be directed outward. Dylan's feelings and thoughts appeared to be directed inward. And it was just like the perfect storm of these two boys influencing each other. But 
you know, I will never really fully understand how my son, someone that I raised, someone who was kind and loving, thoughtful, could do what he did. There, there's a, some piece of that that I will never understand. But having talked with, you know, child psychiatrists and psychologists, reading many books on suicide, you know, I think there are some things about the suicidal brain that we don't know, you know, that there may be physiological differences, that the serotonin isn't attaching the way it should, or there are things that uh, that I think physiologically occur as well as just, you know, what appears to be our thoughts. But I, I think this is a science that uh, needs some development. And, and that's why I chose to, you know, donate all of my share of the profits from the book to organizations that did research in this area. What is the advice you have to moms who have teenagers at home and may you know, be witnessing or experiencing having a hunch, whether it's the voice is off or there's some behavioral changes, you know, what they should be looking for or what in hindsight you wish you would have maybe have noticed? Well, I think that one of the things that you know, we always look for certainly is, you know, the chances that suicidality is there. The chances that your child will be a school shooter, will kill others, are extremely, extremely unlikely. Uh, As I said, it's probably one in millions. But the chances that your child may be struggling with suicidality, thoughts of suicide, or maybe even hidden self-harm, that's quite high. Um, You know, students report that, you know, in a classroom of about 30 kids, the chances are that at least two of those kids, or maybe 2.5, will have been thinking about a suicide plan within the, the last year. So that's the issue that I think I would focus on. We know that in terms of these mass shootings, that most perpetrators of school shootings Most of them are suicidal, not all, but most of them are probably estimated about three-fourths of them having their own suicidality because uh, very often they die at the scene or they are captured, incarcerated. They don't really get away with this. So suicidality is so important to try to uh, stop and help someone with because it can lead to their own deaths, but in also rare, rare cases, it can lead to the deaths of others as well. So what I would say is that every individual should have some comfort in questioning someone about uh, whether or not they're feeling suicidal, how to ask that question, how to respond. I think everyone should have a mental health first aid training. I think that uh, everyone should have some kind of training on suicide prevention, such as QPR or ASSIST or Safe Talk. Those are the names of some of the training programs. And it's more, you know, we may see signs that somebody is feeling suicidal. We may, we may hear comments that someone feels worthless or they may give away possessions or they may say, if anything happens to me, will you take care of my dog? We may see someone acquiring firearms or means, you know, stockpiling pills or searching on websites that have to do with suicide or in some cases searching on websites uh, about school shootings. That's another thing that could be identifying a risk factor. There may be change in sleep habits. There may be change in eating habits or hygiene. So these are all some of the things that we can watch for. 
And then to learn how to ask somebody based on these observations, you know, what's what they're experiencing and let them know that, you know, we're not there to judge, we're not there to punish, we're there to try to help and get get them connected with someone who can help them if we're not able to do that ourselves. You've now committed decades of your life to the research on brain health and violence. But I'm curious if there was a conscious moment there on how you were going to choose to show up in the world in this way, this unexpected way that you had clearly not planned or asked for. You know, we are who we are uh, before tragedies like this happened to us. And by profession, I was a teacher. And so part of what pushed me in the direction that I went was because at the core of who I am, I wanted to learn from what had happened to me. And I knew that if I learned something that I would have the obligation to teach because that is just who I was. So there was that strong sense of purpose right from the beginning. I think I I sort of gravitated to the suicide prevention community and got involved with suicide prevention organizations because right from the beginning, I felt that people who had lost loved ones to suicide uh, reached out to me and were kind to me and welcomed me as one of them. And that is something that motivated me to work in this area and to feel a sense of kinship with others because the experience of losing a child to suicide is so painful and it's different from other kinds of grief. And so I really felt connected to that community. And I think the last thing that was very clear for me was um, an incident at work where um, a lady that I worked with told me that uh, because she knew me, she was handling a situation with her own daughter differently, that her own uh, daughter was about, I think she was about 13 at the time, and she um, was acting a little different. She just wasn't quite herself. And the mother said, because I knew you and because I have talked to you and I knew your story, I wasn't going to let this go. And she said she dug and dug and asked this kid over and over again, what's the matter? Something's bothering you. And the kid didn't, wouldn't tell her. And finally, her daughter broke down and, and told her that one day when she was supposed to be staying home, she snuck out of the house. And when she snuck out of the house, she was raped on the street by a stranger. And the mother then got her help, uh, got her therapy, got her medical care. And, you know, I I think that in my heart of hearts, you know, I don't want people to suffer. And, and so many people are. And the only way that we can do anything about that is by knowing how to help them if they are suffering. There are a lot of people carrying great burdens and they're putting on a brave face. They're putting on a mask so that we don't see what those burdens are. And um, I think that it's certainly my wish that we are there, that we know how to help people that we love so that we never, ever have to face anything like this community has gone through. As our teacher, as a teacher who is committed to this work, what are the key things we need to know now when it comes to brain health and violence? 
you know, there's, I guess the main thing is that just because someone has a mental illness, that doesn't mean they're any more dangerous than anybody else. Yeah. In fact, they're, you know, they're more likely to be victims of violence than to be perpetrators of violence. So, um, you know, that's one thing I would want to make clear. But I believe that, you know, for us to be violent, the thing that that I, I believe has to occur is there has to be a dehumanization or a disconnect uh, with someone against whom we are violent. And that's one of the things that frightens me about today's world is that many of us have a tendency to dehumanize others and to reduce them down to some small aspect of themselves. And it is much easier to hate people and to disconnect from them, to see them as a member of a race, you know, as a member, you know, whatever a gender identity may be, something. And I believe that that kind of thinking is probably the most dangerous thing our brains can do, is to dehumanize others, to disconnect from their humanity, because that's what allows us to hate, and eventually that's what allows us to kill. What do you believe is the solution or some ideas around solutions to end mass shootings and school shootings in this country? Well, you know, I still believe that when people die under those circumstances, when they are feeling suicidal and and in some cases homicidal as well, that that is a stage four, that is an end stage of a progression that has been occurring in most people for a period of time. So I think it's so important as a society for us to intervene before people get to that place where that is the crisis that occurs. So yes, in every aspect of society, in schools, family physicians, emergency rooms, diversion counselors, everywhere, every piece of society holds some responsibility to recognize when someone is in distress, to know how to help them, to know how to ask questions and to listen and to refer. And, you know, I feel that we'll probably never stop violence of this nature, but we have a really good chance of making it happen less often. And if we can identify, especially if someone is feeling suicidal, uh, if someone is obsessed about researching violent incidents, you know, to try to get these people to some kind of help before they cross over a threshold and can't come back. I've heard you talk about this why question and that perhaps it's not the most helpful after these shootings in our country, which are far too frequent. Yes. Can you explain that to our listeners about the questions we all seem to naturally ask in the wake of these shootings and perhaps your thoughts and ideas around the questions we can be asking that perhaps would be more insightful? Mm -hmm. As soon as the shootings occurred, there was, you know, there was, of course, mass, you know, hysteria in the community. And the thing that surfaced over and over again was, who do we blame? And the question to me behind that is why? They want to know why this thing happened. Because they wanted to assign a person, a parent, a school, somebody. They want to. They want to blame somebody. And I very quickly uh, felt that the question of why did this happen will never really be answered because it's too complex. 
And also because if we ask why, it provides us with inactionable results to that question. So what occurred to me was that the really important question to ask is not why it happens, but how it happens. And if we look at what happened at Columbine and certainly with Dylan and what was going on inside of him, what we see is, as I said before, it's a progression. It is something that evolved over a period of time till this very uh, lethal end stage. If we ask how these things happen, we equip ourselves better to look at the process, look at the systems that are in place to support someone who is experiencing this kind of distress and deterioration in their thinking. And we can intervene and get someone to the help that they need before it's it's too late to help them. So, um, you know, I, I really believe it's important for us to look at this process of deterioration and find where helps along the way can be inserted before uh, it comes to a tragic end. What role has forgiveness played in your journey of healing? You know, it's interesting. People ask me about forgiveness a lot, and they are making the assumption that very often that I am angry at Dylan or should be angry at Dylan. And I have not been angry other than other than the day that I saw the police report where it explained what he'd done and how it was done. And I felt extreme anger on, on that day. But over time, you know, I believe that Dylan was not in full command of his faculties, that he was not in his right mind. I cannot excuse what he did because it's inexcusable. I cannot in any way say that anything he did was justifiable. But what I do believe is that he wasn't all there. He wasn't all himself. So forgiving Dylan is not something I've struggled with. The one thing that I have struggled with the most is forgiving myself. And I think that's pretty common among family members and loved ones of people who die by suicide, especially as a mother who loses a child. I believe that, you know, I was raised to believe that it's a mother's job to protect our children. And I believe that women are supposed to be intuitive and we're supposed to know what our kids are thinking and feeling. It's supposed to be this natural gift. And the fact that my son was experiencing psychological pain and before he inflicted pain on others, I'm the one that I feel most angry toward is, you know, how could I not know? It's that question I was getting in the beginning uh, and why it hurt so much was because those were the things that I asked myself. That's always the hard part. Certainly in my experience in working with other suicide loss survivors, we believe that we should have known some magic words to say. We believe that we should have been able to rescue. We believe that we should have been able to read their thoughts. And uh, we can hardly ever forgive ourselves for not being able to do that. What role has compassion played in the journey and compassion for others and compassion for yourself? One thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is, I used to see the world as more black and white. I used to see that, you know, there were good people and bad people. And I was one of the good people in my family. We were, we were on, we were the good people. 
But when Dylan did this, it blurred that line tremendously. And I remember um, working at my job and there was a, a parole office in the building where I worked for a while. And I would ride up on the elevator with some of the uh, some of the folks who were visiting their parole officers. And I remember thinking that I would have been frightened to be in the elevator with them, except because of my own son and what he did, I felt connected to them. I identified with them. I, you know, because of that life experience, I tended to see all of mankind as, as equal and in the same kind of situation. And I felt empathy for people that I had never empathized with before. You chose to stay in Colorado. Are you still in Columbine? I still live near the Columbine area. Yes. Okay. Today, do you have or over the years, have you developed relationships with any of the victims' families? I have developed relationships with a few of the victims themselves or uh, their family members, yes. And has that been healing for you, for them, or what, is, what has been your experience in being connected in, in that way? It has been tremendously helpful and healing for me. I can't speak for them, but uh, they, you know, they indicate that it's been healing for them as well. I, I think that certainly when that first individual reached out to me, when all this was very new and fresh, and uh, one of the mothers of one of the girls who was killed, and the first thing she asked me was, who was Dylan? You know, tell me about your son. It was such a gift to me to have someone acknowledge that, you know, I was a mom too, and I lost somebody too. So yes, finding these these people who were so kind, so loving, and uh, I, I, it meant more to me than I can even say. I appreciate them so greatly. It was such a huge step in my being able to heal and move on to uh, become their friends. And I, I just value it so, so, so much. I love hearing that. And what a beautiful first question for her to, to ask you. Yes. How and when does Dylan show up for you today? Oh, I, I think he shows up for me every day, everywhere. I mean, I dream about him all the time still. And, and just because he's in my thoughts, you know, in my dream thoughts, when I'm awake, I think of him also. You know, I have family pictures all over my walls of my boys growing up. So I can't walk through my house without seeing pictures of him. So yes, he's very much a part of my life. Now, though, after 20 years, I I can remember some of the nice times and, and can smile at some of the memories and remember that, um, you know, how much he meant to me and uh, feel a sense of gratitude that he was in my life, that I had him for the short time that I did. And that's really what I feel the most was just that you know, I had a child who died at 17 years old and life has gone on and he hasn't. He stayed frozen in time at 17. But um, those years with him enriched my life. They were so valuable to me that, you know, I, I mostly just feel gratitude that, you know, I had him in, at all. I'm curious about your hope for Dylan's legacy or the legacy that you are creating on his behalf? 
I have a, a conscious sense of purpose about that. Uh, if I speak publicly, if I do things such as this, I have a little, I wouldn't call it a mantra example, but, but a, little, a little hope that before I enter into anything like that, my deepest desire is that hearing my story might help someone, help someone that they love. I think if, you know, if Dylan had been alive and there had been individuals in his life who knew then what we know now, who knew the importance of, you know, screening for suicide, who knew the importance of psychological support after something like uh, an arrest, for example, uh, how things might have turned out differently. So everything I do is for that purpose, to, to put myself back in that place 20 years 22 years ago and say, you know, what if Dylan had encountered someone who knew what to do and could have helped him, how things would have been different. And I, I sort of want to pay that forward and say, for anybody out there who has someone in their lives that they care about, they're concerned about, you know, maybe hearing something about my story will help them help someone they love. Where are you today in your journey of healing? Well, I don't know the answer to that because, you know, a journey of healing is one in which there is no destination. You know, you don't just suddenly arrive somewhere and you're fine or you know you're better. So uh, that's a hard question to answer because it implies that there is some, you know, finite place that you arrive at. I think what healing really is, is just a process of integration of integrating all that has happened to you, accepting it, and even though it's painful, you're able to live with the pain. And I believe I believe I am there. I believe I have, you know, reached a place where that is the case. I don't ever expect to be without the pain, to be without the sorrow, to be without regrets. Those are just part of the experience. You know, but I have moved through this path of, you know, feeling like a victim and then feeling like a survivor and then feeling like an advocate and and then becoming more altruistic and trying to help others. That journey, I think I've I've passed through those things and now I feel a strong need to try to help other people. Uh, um, you know, one group I try to help is other moms who have lost children who have like Dylan, have been involved in school shootings and um, they don't have anywhere to turn. And so, uh, you know, I try to help where I can just to let people know that, you know, their world is changing, but it's not necessarily all going to be the hell that you feel in the beginning, that over time you will find things that give you peace and meaning. And there will be memories that you will have where you will smile again and remember your son with joy. I'm saying son, it isn't always a son, but usually it is. Uh, so, you know, yes, I guess I believe I'm, I'm on this journey. I don't think I'm ever not on a journey of healing because that's the way life is. We just, things just change and we adjust. What do you hope people take away from your story? I think, um, I hope that people understand that we think that because we love somebody, everything's going to be okay. You know, we, we kind of grow up with that myth. And I want people to understand that love is not enough. That when people we love are 
troubled, when they are not able to help themselves, they're going to need help from us and from others. And there are skills involved. There are things we can learn to do better than we do. We can learn to listen. We can learn to respond in ways that help people articulate what they're experiencing rather than having them lock it up more deeply. And um, that, you know, just because you love someone, you know, don't think that because they feel loved, they could not hurt themselves or someone else because their perception of reality may be very different from what we believe they should be feeling and what they are feeling. Thank you, Sue, for your honesty, your wisdom, and your trust in sharing your story with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Kimmy. It's been an honor. Thanks. So we end with something a little bit light called Lightning Round, where I'm just going to ask... Okay, drink some water here. Some fun questions, fun light questions. So you tell me when you're ready. I guess I'm ready. Okay. Favorite time of day and why? Late morning, because I would like to say I'm a morning person, but I'm not because I'm really lazy and I sleep late. But I do love the feeling of greeting a new day, even if it's late in the morning. Favorite food? Mmm. Penang curry. Nice. Best way to spend a Sunday? Talking with family. Favorite city? Milwaukee. Guilty pleasure? Watching old movies. If you had one day with Dylan, how would you spend it? Boy, uh, first thing that comes to mind is I'd like to just hear how he'd want to spend it. I'd do anything he wants. Wise answer from a mother. Let him choose the day. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm so grateful again and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. I hope you learned something new and found inspiration or information to take action on for my conversation with Sue. I hope you will go back and listen to my conversation with Scarlett Lewis, the mother of Jesse Lewis, who lost his life at Sandy Hook. I hope you will hold on to your people a little bit tighter today. And I hope you will pray for our country to heal and to end these senseless shootings that have taken so many lives these past few decades. Thank you for making the time to listen and God bless you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.